I think if you were to unravel what the SEC is trying to do, they want to provide as much information as possible so that investors have the information they feel they need to make good judgments. And if supply chain issues are going to cut off the availability to a retailer, that's an issue. If a a lender who is prominently in the southeast of the United States and climate change and sea level rise uh, impact the markets they prominently lend in, well, that's an issue to her long-term viability of that company in that area. You know, that 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 lender might start looking into other areas of the United States to lend or switch to a different type of portfolio, be more of a bank uh, entity than a, a lending entity. Um, but that's what they're really trying to achieve is an understanding where they they feel they've covered all the bases so a investor can make an informed decision. Hi, this is Clayton Collins, your host for the Housing News Podcast and the founder and CEO at HW Media. This episode of Housing News is focused on all things climate. We have two very smart guests from CoreLogic, Mr. John Rogers, the Chief Innovation Officer, and George Gallagher, who leads climate risk, go-to-market, and strategy. In this episode focused on climate risk, we talk about all the things that lenders, businesses, both public and private, homeowners, and other real estate owners need to understand about climate risk and how climate may impact future values and the insurance profiles of real estate assets. George, who spends more time with these models than anybody I've ever met, also shares where he would not live in the United States based on some of the risk profiles that uh, that he's seen inside of this CoreLogic model. Um, I really hope you enjoy this episode with John Rogers and George Gallagher on all things climate. John, George, thank you for, for joining me for an episode of Housing News. Nice to be here. Clayton, thank you. Clayton, thanks to be here. Yes. We were uh, talking about all the crazy things happening in the housing market. Like we don't have enough variables in the, in the near term with uh, rapidly changing interest rates and home price appreciation. We have this, this big long tail backdrop, a theme of climate that, um, you know, hasn't been front and center in every originator's mind or every mortgage lender's mind in, in the last year, but it has been a really important theme that's being talked about at the executive level. So I'm really excited today to talk about this topic, all, all things climate. We're going to go pretty broad here, uh, John and George, and talk about all the impacts uh, climate change and climate risk has on the housing industry and um, kind of kind of follow, follow that theme. Fantastic. Wonderful. I think it'll be a long conversation, but we'll try to condense and be on, on point. So, John, before we kicked off, you were you were giving me a, a wonderful introduction of George, and um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself first, and then uh, then I might ask you to introduce George because it was just so perfectly colorful. <laughs> Thanks, Clayton. So, uh, um, lovely to be here, Clayton. My name's John Rogers. I'm the Chief Innovation Officer for CoreLogic. Uh, so, I get to run all the uh, research and development for the company. So, uh, really going after some of these. Uh, large initiatives uh, from climate risk analytics we're, we're discussing today and about uh, also uh, you know, solutions that, that hopefully can help uh, home ownership throughout the United States, uh, both today and, and, and in the future. And then George Gallagher, who's with me, is really the, the linchpin uh, and the mastermind on, on our climate risk analytics uh, and how it really helps uh, government agencies, uh, public and non-public companies really 
uh, assess the risk and mitigate that risk due to climate change on the 200 million uh, structures in the United States. So really, George is the, uh, the mastermind behind all of it. George, what was the uh, what was the quote that you used? If it if it if it blows or shakes or pours or something, is, what, what's your what's your description of climate? I appreciate that, Clayton and John. That was very nice of you. Thank you. I think it's overstated, but uh, but I do appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, just anecdotally, if it burns, shakes, or gets wet, I generally get a phone call from within the company. And uh, so, from that context, I think I have the the label of I'm the disaster guy within CoreLogic. So uh, looking forward to this conversation. The conversation about climate risk is one of those that we're trying to demystify. And I can't think of a better audience to speak to than the real estate economy. You know, everyone involved, all participants, as much as we can help them demystify it, it'll trickle down to their clients and, and to, to the, the market in general. So really appreciate this opportunity. Absolutely. So George, let's just start with how do you define climate risk? Like start at the, the high level. If we're talking, how do we define climate risk? Sure. And, it, and it's a big thing, isn't it? Right. I mean, just when you hear about climate risk, you don't even know where to start. So let's just start with things that are measurable, right? An increase in temperature, an increase in the frequency and severity of events. So climate change kind of taking a step back holistically, there are causes and effects, right? Um, so we are, CoreLogic is in the market to really identify and articulate the risk of uh, the physical risk of climate change. So what that means, just to kind of put the lines in the sand, we're reporting on what the environmental impact is on a property or series of properties, or by extension, their loans or their policies, as opposed to uh, the an individual property or a group of properties impact on the environment. That would be your greenhouse gas emissions, um, your your utility usage and things like that. And the reason I want to kind of set the table that way is climate change and climate risk is such a big question. And, and there are a lot of great minds working in this ecosystem. What CoreLogic is very comfortable and confident in speaking about is that physical risk component because it's core to what we do. And so if we can start really isolating and understand what that is, then you can see that, you know, if greenhouse gas emissions continue to trend upward, what the likely impacts of that will be on uh, buildings and portfolios of buildings and just the, the local economies where those impacts are taking place. So long answer to a short question, climate change in the context that we I hope to talk about today is really, really the physical impact on property or properties brought about by expected changes in the near term and in the future. So the physical world, the uh, real estate, as we think about it, is, uh, you know, really, we're talking about assets that are a couple hundred years old, like in, in maximum lifespan. But CoreLogic is looking at a, a model with several hundred thousand years of data. So we're not just talking about like, hey, I remember when I was a kid, the shoreline was here and now it's here. It used to snow in November and now it doesn't. Like, tell us about the the history of the data that drives the analytics and insights that you were able to deliver. Sure. Uh, and I appreciate that question. And I like that the way you gave context to it. So a couple of things. Um, there's a taxonomy to climate change that I think needs to be um, more exposed. And what I mean by that is it is its own little language. And so to make sure that we're always talking about the same thing, I'll kind of digress and, and bring in a definition. So as an example, we have a 300,000 year simulation model. Now, what that what it doesn't mean is we look out 300,000 years. So in year, you know, 
2022 plus 300,000, this is what the climate will look like. That's not what it means. What it really means is taking a one-year event set, so 365 days, and doing 300,000 simulations of an individual peril, flood, wildfire, earthquake, sort of thing, taking that peril, running 300,000 different simulations against a specific location or property. So when we talk about your house or my house or the offices that we work in, we're able to actually take those individual assets, run them against these massive amount of simulations. And and what I mean by simulations is we have historical data of what has happened at 123 Main Street, any town USA. Um, And if there actually has been an event, we'll have captured it in many cases, going back 100 100 years, depending on the peril. But the important part is taking that actual what has happened, as well as simulations of what could have happened. A a hurricane that came in as a Category 3, for example. What if it was a hurricane Category 5? What if rather than passing through, if Harvey had just passed through in a day versus the week or so that it passed through, what if it actually had taken two weeks? What if it had come in at a different angle? So all those different what ifs are captured in that stochastic modeling that we're talking about. And when you when you look at 300,000 years, and the reason we go 300,000 years, there's a reason for that. We're actually looking for those very, very infrequent but possibly significantly severe events that could have happened, either a grouping of them, all the events in a single year, or an individual event that just stands out. So we're proactively looking for those rare but damaging events so that we can bring it back to the real world timeframe and say, you know, there the the likelihood of this event is very small, but should it occur, here would be the financial impacts to this individual property or this grouping of properties. So again, and I apologize for the long answer to the short questions, but the the definition of some of the, the terms that we use in climate change, once people get comfortable with it, they're able to consume it, right? Once they're able to consume it, they're able to adopt it. And once they're able to adopt it, it becomes an industry standard. Not too many years ago when uh, FICO stores, scores originally came out, people weren't really certain. They'd heard there was a number and there was a bunch of contributing elements to that number, but they really didn't understand it. Similarly, when you talk about climate change, there's a lot of contributions to what makes up a climate change report or score. Getting comfortable with how it's gathered, how it's modeled, and and how rational it actually is. Again, that's that's our goal. Demystify it, make it metric-based so we can understand it, and then we can make plans to mitigate potential major events, build more resilient communities. There's just a lot of... Um, different pathways you can take once you have a baseline understanding of what the risk is. And Clayton, just to add to that, imagine as a, from, a, from a company's perspective, that provides a distribution curve. If you remember math at school, that bell curve, it's going to provide you that mean average um, in terms of probability and also provide the, the extremities as, uh, as George was uh, outlining there. Yeah, the thing about the distribution kind of gives you a glimpse into how the information is is delivered. And John, I had the chance to join you at the CoreLogic Discovery Center um, about a month ago and see some of the visualizations of how these models are being deployed in a, in a visual way. Can you go a little bit deeper into how clients and, and companies are consuming and then applying this data into their business business models? Yeah, the, the consumption model it, uh, varies. Uh, we certainly want to provide that choice and flexibility in terms of consumption. So 
everything from deploying it via a secure FTP onto the client's uh, environment to we can take their portfolio. Uh, we do something called clipping it, which basically assigns a, a proxy identifier similar to a social security number to you and I. Uh, and then they can run the analytics uh, themselves against the climate change models. Uh, they can access it via an API if they're doing a, a property level uh, in, inquiry. So we, we like to give a range of ways to consume it. Uh, really uh, depends on uh, the client's environment and their setup. So, so we try and provide as many options as possible. I are there clients with like with different risk appetites who who might take the model and like run it more conservatively and might have a view that hey the whole eastern coast of the United States is not an area I want to do business or like how what level of customization can clients apply based off their their risk appetite? That's a great question, and and, and I appreciate how you asked it because um, when we get into the climate economy, when the climate risk economy, there really is currently one governing standard. There, there are others, but one that has the international focus and really what the U.S. governance is driving towards. And that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's called the IPCC Science. Um, in its current form, which is known as Version 5 or AR5, they have um, some different distribution pathways, which, well, they're called um, Representative Concentration Pathways, RCPs. A low number indicates a greenhouse gas that's going down or, or trending in, in a in a down position, which is good. A high number, an eight point five, is trending towards kind of the disaster, that dystopian future that you you, can't, you read about. So we're currently on a path of about a four point five, and those numbers aren't material for this conversation. But there's a scientific component to what those those numbers actually mean. But four point five is kind of current state, trending upward. Unfortunately, now the risk appetite question that's where this factors in for those companies who think that. Um, the current climate economy is going to trend similarly to how it is now. We're not going to release any more. We're not going to capture any, any more. So kind of that 4.5, there is uh, an element you can look into. Uh, you can use that RCP 4.5 and continue it on into the future. We're able to provide that level of analysis for them, 2030, 2040, 2050. There are those, however, and I think, um, it, it, it warrants it. What is the worst case scenario? If we're making infrastructure investments, if I'm building a hospital and I need to know that the, in a hundred years from now, the worst thing that can happen, my hospital will still stand, right? I mean, an inf that's a big capital investment, big capital, uh, big infrastructure improvement. They want to know what the worst case scenario is. In the investment world, that you're you're always going to have those people with a high risk tolerance and a lower risk tolerance. And that's where the other part of the ecosystem for financial markets comes in. That's where insurance comes in. When you look at, um, you know, flood insurance as an example, uh, for those properties that are in a special flood hazard area that likely already have, uh, you know, a flood insurance policy, there's a little bit higher risk tolerance than those properties that are outside of a special flood hazard area, but portray themselves as being likely to have inundation issues. So now you're really starting to peel the onion. This is where the analytics start to really separate users. Um, people who have that higher risk tolerance will maybe look for that graduated risk outside of a flood zone or outside of a wildfire zone or outside of an earthquake zone, for example, where others 
don't want to have any of that kind of concentration, whether they're owners of properties, sellers of properties in the brokerage world, lenders to those properties or insurers of those properties. George, where is home for you? I'm in Southern California. So earthquakes and wildfires, that's uh, that's my native language. Okay. I'm curious, like being so intimate with the data and seeing the models run so many different ways, are there any parts of the country that you just would absolutely cross off the list and say, I will, I will never live there under any circumstance? You know, it's it's funny you ask that question because I have a relatively high risk tolerance, right? So uh, I'm going to show my Southern California bias. I really like the sunshine, but we do travel for snow. I would say for me, no. But if you were asked the same question of my wife, things like tornadoes just terrify her. <laughs> if we were in a, a more of a, a wildfire zone, that would terrify her as well. We're already in an earthquake zone. We know what the potential impacts are there, and we've mitigated against those both personally and from a and from an insurance standpoint. So um, I happen to feel that I'm an educated uh, consumer. So I, I don't really have too many variables that that I'm afraid of. It's funny you position it that way because I think people fear what they don't understand. And uh, I grew up in Florida and have been through many hurricanes in my life and sure. have no no fear of going through another one. Hurricanes also, you have like pretty good visibility and like when you're they're heading in your path, like where earthquakes and tornadoes are a little less predictable. So tornadoes, earthquakes are, are scarier to me. Um, but I'm here in Dallas now and we have to deal with tornadoes every now and then and I'm I'm doing all right. So I guess the, the the point I'm I'm kind of driving to is like what what do homeowners need to understand about about climate risk and and, and do they understand? Is it their job to understand? Um, kind of a, a big question, but kind of thinking through, do consumers really understand the risk they're taking buying assets in certain parts of the country? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And so right now, just nationally, right? There are individual states that have more disclosures than this. But if we're looking at a national view, um, the only real peril that's systematically considered is flood, right? Uh, when someone is purchasing a property, there is is that property and they're seeking to uh, have a government-backed loan is generally the criteria. Um, is that property in or out of a, a special a FEMA special flood hazard area? The 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 100-year flood zone, right? So systematically, that's the only peril that you can, in all 50 states, that that needs to be accounted for. That, you know, because of that, I would say, no, the consumers aren't well-educated about even their flood peril, because if they're just, it's a very binary thing. You're either in or out of a FEMA flood zone. If you're out, even just a few feet out, you're, you're considered, you are out. And so I think the common thought is, I must not have flood risk. Well, there is graduated risk. Physics plays a role. You know, water will go to wherever the downhill is. And and if you're below a FEMA flood zone, but outside of it, you know, uh, inundating rains could all of a sudden ruin your day because that's where the water will flow. But to, to get back to your original question, um, I am a believer that uh, an educated consumer is going to be a goods consumer. And I think we're seeing trends, and I'll, I'll reference the SEC guidance and uh, that, that was recently put or that was put out this year, there are trends towards more awareness, disclosure, and financial materiality. When it comes to the consumer, uh, I think you're going to see the CFPB and others really promote things like more disclosure of of, um, of risk uh, by you know, whatever the natural hazard might be, uh, leading towards at some point in the future, fi- what that financial variable is. But I think that disclosure risk is coming sooner rather than later. And I view that as a good thing in the marketplace. I think uh, to add to that, 
to add to what George is saying, there's, there's, there are some early indicators, Clayton, uh, where think of like um, residents in Northern California, they may not be able to get insurance uh, to protect them, uh, themselves against uh, wildfire. Uh, there's challenges with air quality. And you see uh, some early indicators of population movements from these areas. Now, it might not just be down to these attributes. It might be down to, you know, you know, high uh, market uh, market values of the of the houses in that region, but there are some pockets of um, indicators that consumers are beginning to 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 understand some of these aspects uh, um, and coming to fruition. You're kind of flirting into the topic of insurability, and um, I don't understand. I don't know the the insurability risk in California as well as I do Florida. But what I hear in the Florida market is insurance is becoming one of the biggest deal breakers in, in home purchases. So uh, just the cost or, or lack of an insurer there to provide coverage that the lenders require. So how are insurance companies digesting climate risk and data either in partnership with CoreLogic or through other sources? Yeah. So classically, and if you're running up into 2020, 2021, if you were to ask an insurance company for their homeowner policy, so let's be very specific, not life insurance and things like that, but homeowner policies, um, you know, they typically write one-year terms uh, and they can, with appropriate filings in the states that are that manage them, um, they can regulate their rates over time. And that was generally predicated on things like uh, cost of reconstruction. You know, what are materials and labor and equipment costs? If they're going up, uh, they want uh, insurers want to be able to raise their rates. Now, when you overlay that with uh, not only current risk hazard, but also the potential for climate change, they're really starting to get into a, an area that's difficult for them. You mentioned that you live in, in Florida. Um, kind of the good news, and this also applies to Texas, is those two states have some of the highest adoption of building code standards that are, quote unquote, hardening buildings, right? So, um, which is a great thing for both of those states. It, it does increase the, the cost of the housing stock. So there's, there's always a trade-off, but both of those states have very high uptake for building codes for resiliency. And, and there are other states that perform very, very poorly that. So both ten, both Texas and Florida actually are very good. So from an insurance standpoint, um, the homes are getting better, the construction is getting better, and the planning is getting better. There are other issues about, you know, assignment of benefits and things that, that kind of go on its own path. If you're in Florida, you know, the, there's been some recent uh, summits for just to focus on homeowners and insurance because it really is a big issue. But overall, um, it, it's an issue that the insurance industry is is managing. Uh, they are working towards it. AM Best, the leading uh, rater of insurance companies, since March of 2020 has started to incorporate climate change resilience, climate change planning into their evaluation of insurance companies. So that that is getting consumed and absorbed. We haven't seen a, a full escalation of it, but it's starting to be part of the normal politics. The building code thing is interesting because I, I would imagine the codes are more reflective on newer housing stock, which could put pressure on the insurability of, of older housing stock, which is like, you know, weaves together this whole theme of we've had pressure on um, building materials cost and labor and new construction, potentially making older housing stock less valuable over time if it's less insurable or more expensive to insure. 
Right. Right. And I think you saw evidence of that, clear evidence of that in uh, this year's Hurricane Ian. It went through some areas of older housing construction in Florida, and there was some significant devastation. You know, building stock that was from the 70s, 60s, 70s, and, and early 80s that just wasn't resilient to the impacts of Hurricane Ian. Uh, now, reconstruction cost values generally are predicated on the current building codes. Not that that's a panacea, because contemplates that the building was destroyed, right? But, um, you know, it's it's that trade-off between what can you require and the economics of, of what that requirement actually uh, results in. Um, it's it's not an easy answer. I think there's, there's a lot of work being done on it. I think we're able to isolate what those low and moderate income communities that are most impacted by it. Uh, I think there are plans to maybe have certain offsets or or even, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed earlier this year uh, is targeted on infrastructure improvements to the communities that filter down to the individual homeowners. Uh, again, hardening one house in a community is, is is an okay idea, but if the rest of the community remains exposed to whatever that climate is, is whether it's flooding or wildfire or whatever, um, that... Uh, there's no payoff for one house doing it. The whole community needs to do it. And that's where I think the infrastructure is, uh, in, or Inflation Reduction Act is targeted to help those communities elevate their building standards. Yeah, absolutely. And clearly, like the homeowner needs to be have some protection to risk. That's the roof over their head. But the, the holder or investor in mortgage-backed securities also is probably pretty interested in ensuring that they understand the risk dynamics inside of their portfolio. Are you working with MBS investors or other secondary market players in analyzing portfolio risk? We are. And you, you actually, even at the regulation stage, uh, the regulators are worried about what will the impacts be on the MBS marketplace? You know, the, will there be all of a sudden an inventory of properties that will be immediately discounted because they cannot come up with a, a, a climate change rating, if you will. But uh, yes, uh, while the SEC and, and and all the governance governance agencies have not yet come out with the the fully adopted guidelines, there are some there is guidance in the market now that's being evaluated uh, that will start to bring in that climate formula for the MBS market, the CMBS market, and things like that. Interesting. What is what does that guidance look like? Like how does that like I, I know it's still like in progress, but do you have any sense of how it will impact the market or the way that the, the value of mortgage backed securities or the way that people are able to analyze risk? Um so one man's opinion. Let me just use it. Let me just say it that way. I have opinions and I don't think the market has come. John built you up pretty high. I'm putting a lot of credibility <laughs> in this one man's opinion. Well, We'll see about this. Uh, so, it, so the SEC came out with guidance in March of this past year of, of 2022. Um, through early June, there was a there was a uh, response period, and they had about 15,000 responses to that SEC guidance. If you looked at the 510 page document, it roughly broke out to about 80 percent emissions uh, sequestration things related to uh, emanating or uh, creating and, and uh, emanating. You know, greenhouse gases and, and related entities. Only about twenty percent of it talked about the physical risk part of it. Since that's where we where core logic really aligns itself, I'll speak to that part of it. Um, so, in the twenty percent that discussed physical risk, they they have 
brought out suggestions like or guidance that would incorporate um, more climate risk disclosure, uh, more metrics of what that is, and then how, from a financial standpoint, that should be reported. Again, these are this is the MBS market, so they're not really focused at the granular property. They're looking at the aggregate of all those properties brought together. Um, so I think as a first step, they're doing it correctly. Now, we have actually uh, been involved in, in pricing, or not pricing, but evaluating some mortgage-backed security tranches. Uh, there's anonymization phase, a de-anonymization, so you can append the climate risk, and then a re-anonymization uh, of that data. Uh, there's various opinions on the, in the marketplace. One opinion says, this is great. We haven't had it before, and it's the leading indicator for risk. The other side of the coin says, uh, and this is... This is going to be kind of inflammatory, but it, there is an explicit bias for underrepresentation of risk if you don't articulate it at the individual property level. What you're saying is if when you aggregate all that risk at a zip code or higher number, you are overlooking much of, much of the potential risk that, that is inherent in that portfolio. So it's a complicated issue, <laughs> as it always is, but if we really break it down, the market has the ability to identify risk at the individual property. How that is ultimately portrayed in an MBS market, uh, a marketing package or, or risk analysis has yet to be fully determined, but we've worked with some of the regulators to show that it actually can happen. They have uh, a need and a desire and, and uh, a mission to anonymize the data. So you, you know, no individual property can be identified. But that kind of runs up against some of these properties do have a substantial amount of risk. And how are we going to mitigate that? So when you say aggregating at the zip code level can um, like kind of hide some of the risk profile. Is that reflecting that? So like inside of a zip code, you might have homes or assets like right on the river and others that are a mile off and one on one side of the highway and one on the other where like that might be a fire barrier. And is that what you're getting at there? It's exactly it. The okay. zip code that I live in, um, I live in North County Coastal San Diego. So it extends from the ocean itself all the way into some of the foothills. So it, it, and in that expanse, there's, you know, a tsunami and surge risk. There's inland flooding risk uh, from certain areas. There's also wildfire risk. So wherever your home is located or the property is located within that zip code, it might have a higher degree of risk. At the portfolio level, it is mitigated, but is it truly, right? I mean, is it truly is the issue that those folks who are promoting that it's an explicit bias against underrepresentation if you don't have the individual properties accounted for? And Clayton, just on those SEC guidelines, it's, it's really interesting because there it's basically stipulating that every public company needs to report financial materiality in excess of just 1% of any line item on their disclosure, on, on their filing. If you think about, compare that to gap reporting, which is in excess of 10%, that's a, a very strict definition of uh, in reporting that materiality on, on your uh, company's finances. So it's driving behaviors in the market right now, as we see across both uh, agencies and uh, enterprises. That is a very strict guideline and one that I imagine players in the mortgage industry will kind of look at as another regulatory hurdle to, to clear. How do lenders um, clear that hurdle of being able to identify risk down to, down to 1%? 
Well, first of all, it was a real attention getter of the 15,000 responses. I don't, I obviously I didn't read all of them, but it, it, that 1% materiality was a theme across, especially within the, uh, the mortgage uh, and lending industry and the kind of the industry that I'm most connected to. That was an absolute theme. Hey, this 1% is, you know, based on gap at 10%, 1% is an extraordinary burden for us to report. Now, it can be reported again it, uh, to de- demystify all this stuff. We do, we can capture at the individual property location what emissions are. We, the industry, can. What CoreLogic can do, and and others uh, as well. But from a physical risk standpoint, we can articulate what the current client risk, climate risk is, and what, based on various RCP scenarios moving into the future, what the likely impact would be. So that actually can be achieved. Just breaking it down from you know, data and analytics, it actually can be achieved. How well it can be packaged, consumed, understood with an eye towards, given that X percent of this has a high uh, climate risk component to it, but a Y percent of it has low, does that mitigate the the overall uh, exposure? I don't know. That's that's for the MBS market to figure out. But it it can be achieved. It's just what's the willingness and the the capability of of doing that in a marketplace that is somewhat reluctant to, well, it's very reluctant to identify individual properties. Is the SEC most focused on holders and investors in assets, like mortgage-backed securities owner, owners, or are they looking at like the independent mortgage bank as well and the loans that are being originated have been quickly sold off into the secondary market? Uh, great question, but you have to take a step back on what uh, what SEC does. They're, they're responsible for every publicly traded company. So you're talking about manufacturers, you're talking about retailers and everything else. And um, not to get really nerdy or try to teach climate change all in one session, but there are three scopes that they articulate scope uh, and they're called scope one, scope two, and scope three. And they are how close you are to your individual business, right? So in a scope one, it's all your physical assets, where your manufacturing facility is, where your retail outlets are. Scope two is um, the impact that uh, if you're a retailer, you're bringing people into your retail location. They have to drive their cars. What's the impact? And then scope three includes things like uh, your supply chain. So, um, you know, a manufacturer in uh, overseas has to ship all of the content to you. What's the carbon footprint of all that? You as a SEC guided entity have to come up with a way of reporting all of those different scenarios to your bottom line, any one of which exceeding 1% on a line item is a, a significant financial materiality. So to get back to your question, um, they are looking for, I think if you were to unravel what the SEC is trying to do, they want to provide as much information as possible so that inf- investors have the information they feel they need to make good judgments. And if supply chain issues are going to cut off the availability to a retailer, that's an issue. If a a lender who is prominently in the Southeast of the United States and climate change and sea level rise uh, impact the markets they prominently lend in, well, that's an issue to her long-term viability of that company in that area. You know, that, that, that lender might start looking into other areas of the United States to lend or switch to a different type of portfolio, be more of a bank uh, entity than a, a lending entity. Um, but that's what they're really trying to achieve is a, an understanding where they they feel they've covered all the bases so a investor can make an informed decision. 
the attractiveness of being a public company has uh, ebbed and flowed over the years. And in the last several years, we've seen more independent mortgage banks and real estate brokerages enter the public market than we have in, in quite a while. It sounds like a the SEC requirement of a climate risk assessment is potentially like another burden of being a public company. Do private company are private companies being looked at in in a similar way, or are there any regulatory burdens that private companies are taking into consideration? Um, I, again, one man's opinion. Um, CoreLogic was a publicly traded company. We were recently purchased, and we are now a privately traded company. But I believe, uh, and again, just my opinion, I believe we we act like a public traded company in how we aggregate our data and we report our our earnings and our exposures and everything else. And I don't think CoreLogic is dissimilar to the majority of non-public companies. I think many of them appropriately run their operations through similar guidance that you would see in a publicly available company. Um, a good example of that is the Task Force for uh, Climate Change Financial Disclosure, the TCFD. That's a truly voluntary thing to do, right? And, and if you're not familiar with TCFD, it's um, it's a framework for how companies should report climate and climate related activities so that investors you know similar to what the SEC is trying to do so investors have a good understanding of how uh, climate is impacting operations um, right now it's truly voluntary and there are a couple thousand companies that do that including um, in in our in our space the real estate space many of the major lenders of the, uh, across the United States um, and and even smaller lenders so people who don't have to do it are already doing some sort of ESG or climate change uh, disclosure. Much of it is for um, the new buyer. You know, the consumers in the marketplace sometimes are asking for this. It's a buying decision. Who is actually a friend of the environment in their in their parlance? Uh, it's also just a great way to show that you're an innovative company in many cases. That you are leaning into issues that are relevant to you know, the consumer base. So while it is a burden, it's also a trend. And you're seeing from a business practice that um, anything that can materially impact an operation, whether you're publicly traded or privately traded, is something that you might want to have a handle on how ultimately you want to disclose it. I would say uh, also just to add to George, I mean, just as a company, as a private company, typically working with lots of uh, vendors and third parties, and more and more often we're seeing those companies asking for what these third parties are doing whether you're public or private, uh, in terms of uh, ESG requirements, and then as George was saying, if, if you're a consumer-facing uh, entity, you know consumers are demanding more and more attention on on these types of issues. John, when I visited you at the CoreLogic Discovery Center, one of the things that was really impressed upon me was how dynamic the the platform was, and it seems like that level of uh, being dynamic carries over to the the climate model and the climate risk analytics capability. So John and George, as you've worked with clients across financial institutions and other t- types of businesses, have you uncovered any surprise use cases where clients were just surprised you and how they wanted to deploy this climate risk information? Yeah. And um, it's interesting you asked that question. So we've been doing a lot of research recently um, with clients, as you think about the climate risk model, and, and you can predict, you know, every five, ten years, the likelihood of what might happen to that property, and then you start overlaying things like negative equity analysis, where the low to medium income bracket homeowners are in the United States, you see a clustering of these insights and analytics, and hence it allows our clients then to do something about it, and how we think about 
home ownership, not just here and now, the next few years, but actually 10, 20, 30 years, you know, up to 2050. So that's, it's a uh, early research, but really hopeful that it can, it can really support home ownership in the future in, in the United States. John and I were talking earlier. Uh, I am working with a company completely outside of the real estate industry, but I think you'll find it interesting. Their business is to remove residential and commercial pools, yeah, existing pools that are you know have either gone into disrepair or in the areas like the southwest of the United States where water is becoming more limited. Uh, drought conditions have been extensive for an exceedingly long period of time, and even uh, electricity usage and utility usage to support pool use has become onerous. There actually are a number of communities in California that are considering tax incentives to have people remove pools. This company wants to uh, leverage all of that. They, they they do this as a profession. They've done it for years and years. They want to understand the tax jurisdictions and the the climate change impacts over the next three. You know, well, actually, they said three to ten years. And then, interestingly enough, they also have a division that builds pools. They're wondering what areas of the country might have might become more temperate in their uh, in, in their climate. Uh, Areas like the state of Wisconsin, will it become warmer and have a longer potential pool season in the state of Wisconsin so they can plan business in that area? So I just like the idea of uh, taking a, a current issue, the lack of water, tax incentives to remove pools, the, uh, the burden on the electricity grid, solving that, but also looking for opportunities where there might be growth opportunities in, in a temperate climate. I just thought it was a fun analogy to what we do on a day-to-day business. This is a use case that's uh, live and in the marketplace right now and investigating the uh, different parts of the country. That's really fascinating, George. So does that, would that type of client just be able to identify key markets that they want to invest in or actually like go to the property level and say like, oh, I'd like to call 123 Main Street because it looks like they have a pool and it looks like it's time to get removed. Yeah, they want to do both. Uh, in those cases where they can influence legislation for tax remediation, hey, this this has worked in other communities. We've helped benefit, you know, helped other communities benefit from them. But also, you know, they need to keep the lights on as well. So they're looking for business. They, they where they actually prospect for homeowners that have pools. Uh, I, I just thought it was a genius look of incorporating climate data into uh, future business practices. Yeah, it also is a glimpse into how innovative entrepreneurs are getting and leveraging data to drive their business models instead of, um, you know, relying on a a Google search or uh, advice from a friend, they're actually leveraging really smart information to drive business outcomes. Exactly. Thought you would enjoy that Clayton. Yeah, definitely do. George, John, thank you so much for, for what I'd probably call like all things climate 101. This was the the introduction. It really helped me ramp up better understanding climate risk and how businesses across the housing industry and even outside of the housing industry are starting to think about and leverage data to understand their climate risk and actually deploy it. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Clayton. Bam. Now that is a wrap of this week's episode of the Housing News Podcast. Do me a huge favor and go to iTunes and rate this show. And if you leave a comment, you better tune in next week because you might get a shout out. Thank you. Thank you.